thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. The practice of sleep medicine is heterogeneous. There are many who are part of academic institutions while others have chosen private practice. There are differences in how we practice in rural areas and in urban areas, in addition to significant differences from one coast to the other. One model that is becoming more popular is one that is direct to the consumer. Other models embrace personalized medicine and provide a hybrid model utilizing both insurance as well as self-pay. Here to help us understand some of these models better are Dr. Sahil Chopra and Dr. Andy Burkowski. Dr. Sahil Chopra is the CEO and co-founder of Empower Sleep. He completed his residency at UCLA and his fellowship at Harvard Medical School. He is board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary, critical care, and sleep. He also served as associate program director for three years at Loma Linda University. Dr. Burkowski is double board certified by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology in adult neurology and sleep medicine. He practiced for seven years in academics before starting his private clinic. He is vice chair of the AASM Clinical Practice Guidelines Task Force for the treatment of RLS. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Seema, for having us. I've been a big fan of the podcast since, uh, since you guys started in, I think it was 2020. Yeah, well, cool. yay, we'd love to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so Sahil, you reached out a few months ago to chat about your sleep practice. So how would you describe your current model? Um, you know, I, I basically tried to take everything we learned in Boston in our sleep medicine fellowship and tried to replicate it in an online ecosystem. Mm. And like one of the big takeaways from fellowship was that we need to look at sleep more holistically. And sleep is really like a window into someone's health. So what that basically means from what we've done is we've basically taken this idea of sleep care and made it longitudinal care. So we can see the patients in the beginning, understand how different therapeutic modalities are influencing their sleep, and then continue to track them with these novel um, sleep testing devices that are available. So is and, it all telemedicine? Correct. Yeah, everything is telemedicine and, ah. and hyper-personalized. So tell me more. You're talking about yeah, novel sleep devices. So yeah, it's like one of our core technologies that we're using is is a home sleep testing device called Sleep Image. Mm. And it's super easy to use. It allows us to get multiple nights of data and then we can make decisions on what to do and how to intervene based off of that data. Similar to what continuous glucose monitors have done for diabetics, mm. we're trying to take that same approach to like continuous sleep care. Huh, interesting. So Andy, what about your model? So Relax Health is what is known as a direct specialty care clinic. And many members of the audience have probably heard of direct primary care, which is exponentially growing in primary care, but it's basically a membership-based model so mm -hmm. patients pay a consultation fee, and then they can follow it up with a monthly membership where the physician can provide direct care, communication, and treatment to patients on a week-to-week, day-to-day basis. And so it's a lot more flexible than the insurance-based system where it requires certain ways of providing medical care. This is more personalized 
getting back to how things used to be maybe 100 years ago when the doctor used to come to your home. Mm. You know, when you first started talking about it, I was thinking maybe that was similar to an ACO model, but you're completely outside of insurance, right? Correct. So classic direct specialty care does not charge insurance companies or bill insurance companies at all. So it's, in, in my case, it's a pure direct care practice. So it's based on patient uh, fees direct to the physician. And therefore, it cuts down on a lot of the restrictions and the requirements, and it frees us up to provide more timely care, uh, more accessible care. So for example, text messaging, portal messaging or email, phone calls, things that in a typical insurance-based model, you'd be worried about getting reimbursement for or having the time to do. But now that you're basically under a membership, you're getting paid on a monthly membership, that mm. allows patients to have all of these flexible ways of communicating. And each one may choose a different way of communicating with the doctor, but it's very direct with the physician with no layers and barriers in between. So does that also then include testing? Yes, it, it can include testing to some extent. So like Sahil, I, I do some home sleep apnea testing, but the focus is more on complex sleep disorders that often aren't related to obstructive sleep apnea because that's sort of the bread and butter of the insurance-based system. And the focus of my clinic and, and probably most direct specialty care clinics is everything else, your restless leg syndrome, insomnia, circadian rhythm disorders, and behavioral approaches to things like hypersomnolence. So Sahil, is that what you do too? Sort of the non-OSA stuff? Yeah, we kind of, we try to do everything, Seema. So I mean, mm. what Andy was saying totally resonates with me that, and I, and I think you had said this once two years ago at the ASM meeting that sleep medicine is not OSA medicine or like right. OSA medicine is not sleep medicine. Yes. And, I, and I've like taken that to heart and like that's how we were trained in fellowship that, you know, when we look at sleep, we need to look at this in a much more comprehensive way. And what Andy is saying totally resonates with me that, you know, we have to address sleep apnea, we have to address the comorbid insomnia, we need to address restless legs, we need to address circadian rhythm issues. If if we want to optimize for outcomes and, and we want to optimize for the overall idea of good sleep health, we need to take all of these things into account and like one of the analogies that comes into mind is like the idea of addressing hypertension is very different than the idea of addressing cardiovascular health. Because mm -hmm. when you think of cardiovascular health, you're thinking of like VO2 testing, uh, VO2 max, your lipid profile, calcium score, all of these different things. And if you want to help somebody improve their sleep health, I think it then makes, it only makes sense to look at sleep in a much more comprehensive way too. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. You know, I, I was just talking to somebody in clinic the other day and I was like, so sleep is kind of like making a cake, right? Like you've got your flour and you've got your sugar and you've got your eggs and your butter, right? And so let's say you don't have, like you decide you don't want to deal with the flour it's going to be really, really hard to have a good a good cake. <laughs> so it's kind of all of it, right? Like you need duration and quality and timing and, you know, all of that stuff. So that's interesting that you say that you're, I think you're right on with that. So are you using then only the sleep image or do you also incorporate data from like consumer facing wearables like Fitbit and Apple and that sort of thing? Yeah, we haven't, we use them as maybe like a screening tool. 
um, mm. where the patient may tell us, hey, guys, like my my wearable device is saying X. But all of the clinical decisions that we've been making have been based off of home sleep testing devices. And we've been using sleep image. And we recently integrated a, a Cerebra, the, oh, the yeah. Cerebra system that it gives you ORP and all of these different things. So it allows us to look at brainwaves, look at PLMs and, and breathing. So that's been really interesting too. Oh, very cool. So is that all then cash pay or does some of the, that go through insurance? Yeah, we like like the testing. We sort of sort of what Andy has done is we've built it into a subscription model mm. where we say, hey, "Here's a recorder. You can use it for as many times as you want to, and you can do as many nights of sleep testing, and uh, you'll get the data every morning." And um, we've we've built that into a subscription model where it's all okay. covered into that subscription, along with the texting and phone calls and all of the other things that Andy is also doing to to drive patient engagement. So even the Cerebra piece. Yeah, we just we just eat the cost and we just incorporate it into the the, the subscription. Ah, and then what about sort of patient facing information? Like patient input, I should say. So like how did you sleep last night? Cuz I think you had shared with me that you even will ask about body position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so what we've done is we've built a layer of software that sits on top of sleep image. Okay. So it gives them that sleep in it, sleep image data in a much more user-friendly, consumable way. And it in, in that data is presented to the patient so they understand what is happening to their sleep on a night-to-night basis when they wake up every morning. And in that interface, they can journal that I did A, B, or C so that the next day they can understand what resulted in X, Y, and Z. Mm. And into this is also integrated like CPAP data, like the stuff that you get in Airview. And they can also, you know, journal different things. So the idea is really to help people get from, you know, diagnosis, treatment to then optimization all from the comfort of their home. Do you run into a lot of orthosomnia? You know, we haven't. Um, we have not run into a lot of orthosomnia, but what we have run into frequently is the sleep data does not look as good as how the patient feels or vice versa, mm-hmm. where the sleep data looks really good, but the patients don't feel as good. Mm. And it just sort of opens up a can of worms in the sense that <laughs> like, like it's sleep sleep medicine is not as simple as you know what we we may have thought it was well that's right right you don't walk in one end you know and leave with a CPAP it's it's definitely a lot more complex and and nuanced so Andy you know you have this background in RLS and you've done a lot of important work with RLS is that kind of a focus of your practice yes it's one of the the main focuses in large part because my research background has been in restless leg syndrome. So a lot Mm. of the patients who are coming to a clinic like mine are looking for assistance with restless leg syndrome. And because there's really no procedure that restless leg syndrome has, it's it's often kind of put on the back burner when it comes to putting testing and sleep apnea diagnosis ahead of 
a secondary condition like restless leg syndrome. So I manage a lot of augmentation, as you would suspect. And with the membership model, I even have a five-month membership track specifically for augmentation, as well as a two-month track for insomnia with offering cognitive and behavioral therapy for insomnia. But these tracks and, and the membership allows a flexibility of communication and follow-up. Because if you're ordering iron infusions or starting someone on buprenorphine or another opioid, you don't want to have to see them in three months and say, hey, how did it go? You're, you really need to communicate with them on a week-to-week -week basis, ideally, because they're going through dopamine agonist withdrawal, their symptoms might be getting worse, uh, they might be having side effects from medications. So that constant interaction, small amounts over the course of the, the month, rather than one clinic visit every three to six months, makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense for helping people navigate these difficult conditions like insomnia and restless leg syndrome. So then you let's say you do that five months of augmentation. Do you then release them back to their primary or whoever was managing it before? Well, it depends. Everyone has their own time course. So they, they're not cut off after five months. They would just continue on as a, a standard member of the clinic, uh, which would be a reduced rate. But ah. but the Restless Legs program, is it's sort of on average, this is how long it may take. But some people are better within two months. Other people, it's still a year out. And we're still working on getting them off their dopamine agonist. So it's just sort of a ballpark. And, and the reason for this is that patients who are paying, and they're not just leaving it to their insurance, they want to know what they're going to have to pay. So by having a, a fixed amount of time where they're paying this fee for this program, they know what they're committing to. And there's no surprise fees, or it's not hourly like lawyers would charge. So that's why I went with the membership model. And that's why most direct care physicians have a monthly fee is because you don't want to nickel and dime patients. You don't want to right. charge them on an hourly basis for this. So there's certainty as to what the costs might be. So is that like a set fee by the person, like the, the company that oversees this, or do you set your own fee? Well, in direct special care, you, you kind of set your own fee and there's it's such a small market currently that's really one of the challenges is that there's no comparison because this is something that's offered that's really outside the mainstream system. So it's either you choose to go to an insurance-based sleep clinic or you choose to pay this membership fee for this clinic. And there's not a lot of a comparison to set these fees. So a lot of it is based on the time that the clinician will spend and the amount of reimbursement it takes to have a reasonable salary with the amount of time that they're spending with each individual patient. So it ends up being, hopefully in an ideal world, a similar salary to an average sleep physician, but with more intensive time and communication with each individual patient. And as Sahil said, that a lot of this is more of the holistic approach mm -hmm. to things, whether it's to hypertension, cardiovascular disease, or in our case, sleep medicine. When a patient comes in and they're having trouble sleeping or they have erratic sleep, it's not just going to be sleep apnea. You have to address all of these other issues because the quality of life, the quality of their sleep, their daytime function has to improve. And that involves a lot of counseling, education, and behavioral modification to do that. And that requires yeah. quite a time commitment. Sahil, is that kind of yours too? Yeah, it was just a uh, it's like so many thoughts in my head. <laughs> that, that makes that makes so much sense, Andy, like I remember when I was in fellowship and I used to, we had restless leg clinic with Dr. Winkleman um, at MGH and 
these augmentation patients say they're they're just so um, they're so sick, right? And they're so their sleep is so disrupted that it 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 only makes sense to have frequent touch points and like the traditional system does not really incentivize you to do that. And I'm just thinking about like these patients that we would see in insomnia clinic and we would give them the uh, ASM as a, a, the PDF of a sleep diary. And, you know, it's a two week diary and we would say, well, here, fill this out, but I'll see you back in two months or something. And it, it just doesn't work that way. Like when, when we have, um, frequent touch points and we get to close the loop to see if something is working or not working. Uh, patient engagement seems to be much higher. Outcomes seem to be much better. Um, everything that you're saying totally resonates with, with, with me. So how did you guys set your fees? Was this sort of trial and error or did you kind of look at the cost of running clinic and, you know, is there like a worksheet that would, that helped you figure this out? Go for it, Andy. <laughs> it's a hot potato, I know. Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in my case, uh, direct specialty care is, is a growing area. And at the time I started my clinic, there were some other specialists who had direct specialty care, at least a half dozen or so that I could access their websites. And, and fees are transparent. And that's part of one of this. This is more of a, a, a business where there's transparent interaction. So patients know how much they're going to pay up front. And so I could see what other, like a preventative cardiologist or a rheumatologist is charging uh, for their fees. And, and I could set mine to something similar to, based on what I'm providing. Uh, for example, though, I have a 90-minute new patient consultation. Mm. So I would expect that that would be a higher charge than if somebody did a 30-minute new patient consultation. So there are differences in each practice, but it's it doesn't have to be cookie cutter. It can be unique to the individual who creates the clinic because you are you have complete autonomy over how the clinic is designed. If you want to work seven days a week, you can set up clinic for seven days a week. If you want to work three days a week, which is what I've set my clinic up for, uh, that can be done because there are no rules as to what must be done. And so it, it takes a, a, a little bit of time to figure it out because you once you start your clinic, and you spend time working with patients, you may have to then adjust your fees based on, on how much time you're spending mm. with them. And th that comes with some experience. But as more and more sleep physicians start to go into direct specialty care, there may be these already established models where you can model your new clinic after others who have gone before. So isn't, is it telemed or is it in person? So my clinic is 100% uh, telemedicine, like oh, it is. as okay. well. But there are other direct specialty care clinics that can have an in-person component. But again, there's not a strong emphasis uh, for in-person because I, I have a regional practice. So I'm seeing, I'm based out of Michigan, but I'm seeing patients even in Florida, even in the Florida Keys. So I, I have patients that might live 2,000 miles apart one after another that I'm communicating with. So there really isn't a strong incentive to have an in-person present. Obviously, there's an advantage to it. But telemedicine has broken down barriers to access to care, even in remote areas where a sleep specialist is going to be hard to find. Andy, I'm curious, um, like, how are you doing these uh, iron infusions? That's like a problem that I've run into a lot. Would love to learn your uh, get some insights from you on how you're 
doing iron infusion for these restless leg patients remotely? Yeah, the iron infusion is challenging. So even though this direct specialty care system is outside the insurance system, there's some existing appendages that you still have to work with. So one of them is iron infusion. This is the first line treatment for restless leg syndrome that almost no restless leg syndrome patient has had exposure to. Mm. And it's because it's very hard to find an infusion center. It's hard to find people who are knowledgeable uh, about iron infusions to begin with. And as an independent practitioner, you don't have your own infusion center. This isn't a drug where you could send a prescription to the pharmacy. You really need a sort of privileges because it's a procedure. And so finding independent infusion centers is really the key for independent sleep physicians. And generally, I'm able to do that. If I can't, I'll refer a patient to their primary care or maybe a hematologist where at their local medical center, they might be able to get iron infusions. But it's, it's actually quite difficult because there are not a lot of access to iron infusions. It's not very profitable for independent centers currently. And unfortunately, it's not actually covered by mm-hmm. most insurers for restless leg syndrome. So if a patient doesn't have a comorbidity like iron deficiency anemia, they might not have insurance coverage for the procedure, even though it's indicated for the condition, even as a first-line treatment. So hopefully that will change as it becomes more widespread in use and as you know, the guidelines come out and are more supportive of this treatment. But that is a huge challenge, particularly for someone without a big medical center where they have five sites where they can order iron infusions. Yeah. I remember like in fellowship, we used to do it all the time and the, the outcomes were remarkable mm-hmm. of like how patients would feel afterwards. And that's definitely been a problem that I've run into a lot where I wanted to infuse iron to patients where like they have restless legs confirmed from an in-lab study. Uh, they have PLMs from an in-lab study and they have severe RLS and they have iron deficiency, but it's just been a challenge to get it done. Yeah. And you're right for the right person. It's, it's magic. I remember a lady that had, you know, short gut syndrome and terrible RLS and during the infusion, her legs got better. I mean, it was just, it was the most magical thing <laughs> I'd seen at that wow. point. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about alternative practice models. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Join us September 22nd through the 24th for the Virtual Sleep Medicine Essentials 2023. This course will help you prepare for the Sleep Medicine Board and MOC exam or refresh your sleep knowledge. Attendees can also register for the on-demand intensive scoring review add-on course on September 21st. Learn more at aasm.org forward slash events. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Chopra and Dr. Burkowski about alternative practice models. So do you guys need to be licensed in multiple states? Well, yes. With the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the sort of uh, unrestrictions of the pandemic allowed us to access a lot of states through telemedicine. Uh, But now as the, the national emergency has ended, states are going back to their own restrictions when it comes to who can practice in their state. And in telemedicine, it it really depends on where the patient is. So there are some states like Florida where they have telemedicine specific licenses, which are much easier to get and and maybe less less of a cost than actually going state to state. And uh, so I currently am limited to about three states, but in the future I may 
look at more states that are more telemedicine friendly. But getting full state licenses for a small practice is not only time consuming, but also not very cost effective if you only have two or three patients in one state and you have to do all of the paperwork for the licensing. But there are compacts, interstate compacts are, are starting to develop where it may become progressively easier to get multiple state licenses through a centralized system. How about you, Sahil? Yeah, no, I am licensed in in almost forty five states. And oh my goodness, are you uh, really? Yeah, yeah, it's a long story, and I <laughs> <laughs> don't want to waste your listeners' time on, on how that happened. And the, I, I think I have uh, fingerprint stains on my fingers from all the fingerprinting that I had. I bet. To, uh, <laughs> I bet. I, I had to do. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, I we have to get licensed in multiple states, and it's it's a tedious process and. This uh, interstate compact licensure um, is is a really useful tool, but mm-hmm. I think it has. Uh, and Andy, you probably you may know this more than I do. That there's like four criteria to this. You have to be a resident of one of those of, of those like I don't know thirty some odd states. Your practice has to be in that area. Um, you have to have I don't know hospital privileges. Or there, there are some like nuances to this. And because mm-hmm. I was in California, I wasn't able to apply for that uh, interstate uh, licensure yeah. compact. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it, it does definitely help, but it's not, you know, it's not as maybe as streamlined as we're hoping it will be <laughs> down the road. So was it hard to create these models, Sahil? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, like it's never good to start off with a sigh, right? Enough <laughs> <But, laughs> <I'm> said, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, I think I was kind of blessed in a way that I never like worked anywhere um, to have any preconceived notion of of how to start, huh. and 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 basically, like I was doing. Uh, so this started during the pandemic. I was doing locums critical care. Um, to to sort of get up and running and the, I used to keep watch pad recorders in my trunk um every time like somebody like a nurse or another clinician in the ICU would be like hey dude like my sleep is horrible my sleep sucks I snore or like something related to sleep and I would basically pull up my phone uh show them my uh, Venmo um <laughs> QR code and be like hey you know here's a sleep here's a watch pad here's a AAA battery and you know, let, let's do a sleep test. I'll call you tomorrow or the after tomorrow with the results. And it, it it basically evolved out of that. Oh my gosh, Andy, what about you? Did you you know have Watchpad out of the trunk of your car too? Well, in my case, it was being influenced by some of the direct primary care models, and then later the direct specialty care models. And how could I treat? complex forms of restless leg syndrome or even do CBTI myself, which is pretty rare among sleep physicians where we typically outsource CBTI to therapists or psychologists to do. And this model seemed to make a lot of sense is that this is types of treatment that are not offered in most places. So perhaps patients would come and pay a membership to have access to these services from a physician. So that was kind of my initial concept. And then I followed some of the trends of the direct care field in terms of building that up. But it did require some degree of business knowledge that needed to be obtained. But the one thing I, I would say to sleep physicians who are 
aspiring to do this is that yeah, I mean, you made it through medical school. You can you can synthesize information like any other person in, in any field. So learning a few ideas about how to start your own business or practice is really very easy compared to the amount of information you synthesize throughout medical school and residency. Isn't it funny how often we forget that too? You know, when I, I set up my um, private practice, so I worked at, you know, at a hospital after fellowship, and then I started a private practice. And the first way we did it um, wasn't with an LLC. It was some other, I can't remember what model it was. But then when I was pregnant with my daughter and I went out for my C-section, we kind of rolled it out so that when I came back, it was with the LLC. So, yeah, we can definitely learn and kind of, you know, do something that's maybe more tax advantaged or, you know, more clever or something like that. Or that just kind of makes more sense. So, yeah, your your point is very well taken. I think we're all sometimes um, underestimate ourselves. Yeah, I think like the hardest part is at least what comes to mind is as clinicians, we have this comfortable salary <laughs> and there's a plethora of jobs everywhere that it's, it becomes really hard to convince yourself mm. um, to like let go of something to go and start from scratch. Um, you know, figuring out the business side of things I think is not the hardest part. It's rather building the motivation and the desire to be like, hey, you know what? I'm going to go try something different. Mm. I'm going to put this job aside and and just go with the flow and and see what happens. Well, and to your point, right? You can always go back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a, sure. I mean, ha, we get called by recruiters all the time, right? You can always go back. Yeah. Right. There, totally. There's no shortage of jobs for sleep physicians currently. And, but Sahil's right. The barrier is not learning a few business skills. It's taking the jump from that, it, particularly for employed physicians, that guaranteed paid salary hitting your uh, bank account every two weeks to starting at zero because mm -hmm. you have to be prepared to start at zero or maybe if you're, t you're taking out a loan, you're starting at a negative mm -hmm. level of, of income basically to invest in, in the clinic itself. And one of the advantages of telemedicine is there really is no overhead and most of the upfront fees are, are going to be incidental and, and not necessarily brick and mortar. But even if you're starting a brick and mortar clinic in person, or even if you're going to do diagnostic sleep testing to varying degrees where you do need to invest in infrastructure, uh, these are these are things that can be learned and mm -hmm. that benefit, that income will come eventually if you succeed. But, but going from that guaranteed salary is a huge jump. And I think that's one that, you know, we're, we're used to being in medical school residency. Everything in our future is set forth by by previous people. It's the next year. It's the next next task. And this is sort of you're floating out in the ocean, and there's no guidance as to where you're going next. So it's it's a little bit uncomfortable, and that's probably the biggest barrier. But there there's so many opportunities uh, in independent practices that physicians should not be hesitant to do this because, you know, the worst thing that happens is in two years, you just get another employed job because there's numerous ones available. I will say, though, that even, you know, I work in an insurance model 
And so some months, you know, when you get that um, insurance adjustment that hits your account, it's negative. Like your P&L sheet for that month is negative. And you're like, oh my gosh, I worked so hard for this month. <laughs> and I'm like in the hole this month. And it's it's discouraging. Um, and that's just from an insurance thing. But I also feel like that's part of, you know, then the next month will be different. You know, your previous month was different and you just kind of keep going, right? It's like it's like driving, right? We don't overcorrect, right? You drive into the horizon and you look at the long term, you know, what you're doing. Totally, totally. So how did you fund this? How did you fund your startup costs? I mean, Andy, you talked about taking a loan. Yeah, so I, I actually didn't have to take a loan. I obviously, personally, I saved up for anticipating a ah. drop from a salaried income to potentially not making any income right away right. until the patient panel starts to grow. But uh, there, so I guess I took a personal loan out from myself, but that was not as terrible as it sounds because of the fact that this is telemedicine mm. and there really was not a brick and mortar space that I had to rent. So when you're talking about EMR, malpractice, those are going to be your biggest expenses. And those are not huge expenses in the grand scheme of, of things. And uh, most of the treatment I'm doing is working with the patient. I, I do have a home sleep apnea testing component, but I'm not working with a lot of devices and equipment where, where there's going to be a lot of overhead up front. And mm -hmm. many uh, direct care or, or some of the direct care sleep clinics have added things like actigraphy. So you, do, you may invest in an actigraph, but that may pay off for itself within a few months as well, because that's something that a lot of patients don't have access to that type of mm. diagnostic testing or any of any of the home testing that Sahil's already talked about is this stuff is relatively new and, and very hard to obtain. And but overall, if you're not building a sleep lab right away, you're not going to have a lot of overhead up front. Sahil, what about you? Is this all funded through Venmo and the trunk of your car? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was actually, yeah, that's how it was initially funded for sure. Um, but like, you know, over time, as I was, I basically, you know, one thing that I, I had a really intelligent attending tell me, mm. dude, live like a fellow. As long mm -hmm. as, if you live like a fellow for the rest of your life, you'll be really wealthy. And, you know, obviously that's not practical. Um, once you have a family and you have ex other expenses and they need to go to school and whatnot. But, uh, you know, we continue to keep our expenses pretty low and I continue to work as an as a low-comes intensivist. Oh, you so that do? Was, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So that has allowed me to, at least in the early days, to fund this and get out like a minimum viable product of like, hey, this can be done. Yeah. And, and these hypotheses have been proved. And once those hypotheses were proved, um, there's a whole bunch of different pitch competitions that we pitched to and we raised a little bit of money through that. We had some friends and family, angel investors who believed in this mission of providing people personalized sleep care online. And, you know, that was basically how we, we funded ourselves. That's amazing. So how have other people reacted to this? Like, are your colleagues supportive? It's, it's, it's interesting. Um, like we have uh, monthly meetings with our advisors um, in Boston at Harvard mm. and we share like case studies and we discuss difficult cases. And once people see how sleep 
has a night-to-night variance in how different interventions influence sleep, it becomes really interesting and people's perspective changes that, hey, you know what? Longitudinal Mm -hmm. sleep testing and tracking is so insightful that I think everybody should do it. But those who have never done it, to them, it's like, why would I do two nights of testing? If I have a quote-unquote diagnosis, then why do I need to do this again? But once you see how sleep changes on a night-to-night basis and you see that data, it's hard to ignore it and like go back to a very traditional way of providing people care. Mm. I mean, like we, we call it the, like a true baseline of sleep when we do seven to 10 nights of data collection before we even come up with a treatment plan. And it's like... It's, it's, it's so interesting, Seema, to see how alcohol, body position, um, sedatives, hypnotics, you know, just different yeah. interventions change sleep on a night-to-night basis. Sometimes people can have a 50% reduction in their apnea index just with the wedge and sleeping on their side. And if that's the case, then the treatments change. So it's just, once you see the data, it's hard to ignore it. Um, so it, it does take a little bit of time for someone to adopt it, mm. but it's the patients love it. And I think as a clinician, one just finds it extremely formative in delivering personalized care. How about you, Andy? Are your colleagues supportive of this model? Yeah, I've had an overwhelmingly positive response. And many, many say, you know, with hesitancy, I, I wish I could do that. And mm. they, they can, but they, they don't think they can. Uh, so it has been overwhelmingly positive. And, and I've had probably a half dozen sleep physicians. I, I do some peer advising um, for people starting practices. And, and I've had at least a half dozen who are interested in starting a direct care sleep clinic. And I've had others outside the field of sleep medicine as well. So I think it's an area that we, we will see growth of. There's probably a half dozen or so, depending on how you slice it, uh, direct specialty care sleep clinics currently. But I think that's going to grow over the course of the next couple of years as this model becomes more acceptable to patients and they're, they're more familiar with this option, particularly because of all of these neglected areas within sleep medicine that don't fit into the insurance payment model. And I think a lot of sleep physicians are going to consider this as an alternative. So, so far I have not had anybody doubt that this would be a great idea for them. And I'm, I'm just more surprised that they don't, you know, follow and, and start their own clinic. Well, even within insurance, so even the things that are reimbursed, it's a lot of work to get that reimbursement. You know, my, my clinic manager will, you know, she'll be on the phone for like 44 minutes with this insurance company and then like 64 minutes with another insurance company to get something prior off. It's like an insane amount of hours that she spends just navigating insurance. So I can imagine how much that would free up her time if she didn't have to deal with any of it. Right. And that's that's part of the the benefit of not working with the insurance is, is cutting out all of the bureaucracy. So you you may need less less support staff and you may have more time uh, to actually take for patient care directly. And that's one of the huge advantages. Yeah, one um, thing that comes to mind, Seema, that's been really helpful for us, and I think this could benefit anybody who's listening, is once you're like a virtual first type of program, 
you can outsource a lot of the back office stuff abroad. And hmm. you you can hire like a, a lot of our uh, back office team is in India and Philippines. Oh, no way. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And like they're amazing people, super kind, wonderful to work with. Um, and they just, they, they, they love helping us on all these day-to-day tasks. Um, and I don't, I don't know, Andy, if you do this, but like even in the visits, we actually have a, a virtual medical transcriptionist who's there as a part of the care team, who's basically helping us with the documentation as I'm having a conversation with the patient. And after I'm done, I just, you know, review the notes, sign it, call it a day. Anything that we need for prior auth stuff. Um, we have people abroad that are just managing these things and uh, they cost a, a fraction of the price as compared to somebody in the United States. So that has been that 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 has been super helpful for us in terms of like keeping operational costs lower hmm. and, and, and and being able to provide like an amazing experience to the clinician as well as to the patients. So if we want to follow in your footsteps, do you have resources? Do you have advice for us, Andy? Well, it, it depends on uh, anyone's style of learning, but I'm, I'm more of a podcast listener because I like to multitask. But there is a, a podcast called the My DPC Story podcast, which has a clinician who does direct care every week on this podcast. Uh, and that, that has a lot of great information and insight there. And in, in terms of books, uh, Paul, Dr. Paul Thomas wrote a book um, uh, related to uh, DPC uh, called uh, DPC Startup, which is sort of a how-to guide to start a direct care practice. And though it's more for direct primary care, it can be extrapolated to a specialty like sleep medicine because most of the principles uh, remain the same. How about you, Sahil? Yeah. You know, I, I think I should have read these books, Andy, like you. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm thinking about this as, as you're talking. Um, yeah, I didn't I didn't really do much homework on this. I, you just sort of dived right in, and I'm sure I would have been better off if... <laughs> had well, maybe I, had not, I though, this. right? Maybe you would have, it would have scared you, and then you wouldn't have done it. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, but definitely listening to, listening to podcasts. There's so much information online. Reaching out to people who have done some similar stuff, I'm sure that would be super helpful. So, any final thoughts? Well, from my standpoint, I would encourage people to explore these parallel pathways of clinical practice and not be felt, not feel like they're boxed in, because there are all these conditions that people would love to treat: the restless leg syndrome, the circadian rhythms. Uh, actually doing CBTI and setting up your clinic to do full CBTI rather than referring patients out. This is all possible when it comes to an independent practice, and it really can be set up in any way that an individual likes. And so I would really encourage people to to not feel trapped in their current situation and maybe explore alternatives to what they've been doing in, in an employed system. Yeah, I, to- that to- I would totally echo that, Andy. And the only thing I would add is if you, like, you know, we've spent so many years and like almost over a decade in training. And if you don't like what you do, there's something is wrong. Hmm. And we all have the ability to take responsibility and, and change that. And like, I always encourage clinician founders, 
physician entrepreneurs or doctorpreneurs, whatever we want to call them. Entrepreneurs, yeah. Yeah. You know, of <laughs> like, just go for it, man. Like you guys are, you know, you you have the capacity to do anything that you want to. You just have to put it in your mindscape. And if you do that and you have some kind of a plan, if you can get it through, if you can get through medical school and residency, like there is, I have no doubt that if you persevere and you try you can have like a very fulfilling and fun career where it doesn't really feel like work. I mean, like my wife says I work all the time, but I tell her like, I, I feel like I don't even work. I just, you know, go talk to patients, do my thing and I come back home and it's, it just, it doesn't feel like work anymore. It, it just feels like having fun and it feels super fulfilling. I, I sincerely appreciate you. Um, you know, giving me the opportunity to, to speak to you. I've been a big fan of the podcast and have listened to these episodes ever since the beginning. And it's really wonderful oh, and flattering awesome. to, to, to be able to, you know, talk to you in person and Andy, as well as you, it was, it was a pleasure to, to learn about your practice and, and, and sort of learn what you're doing. And, uh, we'll love to pick your brain afterwards too <laughs> on this like restless leg stuff. Yeah, no, I I, I was going to butt in and, and kind of echo some of your sentiments about, um, you know, having to set an artificial time restriction on how much I'm working now because I, I enjoy it so much and there's actually so much more I could be doing mm. rather than being forced to doing it. I, I actually enjoy it so much. Um and and then the other the other thing that was funny was was because maybe because you didn't follow you know a strict book or how to process that's how you came up with such a creative way of administering sleep care. Um, so I'm I'm really I admire what you've done uh, as well. It's very impressive. Oh, thank you, man. Thank you. Well, how nice to end on an aspirational note. So thank you both for joining us today and helping us to better understand alternative practice models and for providing us with resources that will help us successfully navigate this new area. Thank you, Seema, for having us. It was a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure for me as well. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.